Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby, a work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We are located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. Our phone number is 859-371-2095. You can also visit us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, that you may grow thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. My name is Greg Littmer, and I am one of the elders of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. A truly interesting, indeed a fascinating time in Israelite history involves the children of Israel in the land of Egypt, their exodus from that land, and then the period of wilderness wandering. There is one particular aspect of that study that never ceases to amaze me, and I want to talk about that aspect this episode. In the first chapter of the book of Exodus, and as the book begins, the children of Israel are in the land of Egypt, and they are prospering. Looking at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1, we find Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied, and became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them. After the death of Joseph, some considerable period of time passed, and the children of Israel grew phenomenally, as had been promised Abraham. They were becoming as numberless as the sand on the seashore, and they apparently were accumulating goods. But then we arrive at verse 8. Now a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. This was probably the beginning of a new dynasty, and the pharaoh, more than likely, was Ramesses I. As he viewed this foreign people in his land growing mighty in in number and strength, he feared that should war break out, the Israelites would join with Egypt's enemies and leave the land, taking their wealth and their labor with them. So he took steps to subject them setting taskmasters over them to afflict the Israelites with their burdens. But verse 12 tells us, But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. So Pharaoh ordered additional steps to be taken. Verses 13 and 14 tells us, The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar, and bricks, and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. Even this is not all that Pharaoh did. Looking at verses 15 and 16, we find, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphra, and the other was named Pua, and he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth, and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then they shall live. When they failed to do this, Pharaoh ordered all of the male children born to the Israelites to be thrown into the Nile River and drowned. We all, or most of us, know the story of the birth of Moses, his trip down the river in the ark made of bulrushes, how he was found by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in the court of the Egyptians. We know that he ultimately killed an Egyptian he saw beating a Hebrew, and then fled Egypt to the land of Midian when the act became known. 
Moses was 40 years old at the time and would remain in Midian for another 40 years. Now let's consider Exodus chapter 2 verses 23 through 25 to see how things were going with the children of Israel during that time. The passage says, Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. The children of Israel suffered tremendously at the hands of the Egyptians. Their cries and their groanings rose up unto God, and he took steps to save them. Moses was chosen to lead the people out of Egyptian bondage and into the promised land of Canaan. We all know about the ten plagues God brought upon the Egyptians in order to convince Pharaoh who he was dealing with and to persuade him to let God's people go. But are we all aware of the fact that these plagues raged around them while the children of Israel were not afflicted? Eventually, Pharaoh relented after one last horrific plague and let the Israelites leave Egypt. But it was not very long before he changed his mind. Pharaoh mounted up his army and went in pursuit of the children of Israel, hemming them in against the Red Sea. This is where the amazing thing that I mentioned in the beginning begins to take place. Considering Exodus chapter 14, verses 10 through 12, we find the following. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they became very frightened, so the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness." Thus begins a pattern we will see over and over again. They had cried out to God to deliver them. They had groaned in their affliction. With mighty displays of his power, God had delivered them. And now here, when this crisis arose, they wanted to go back to what they had been rescued from. Well, now they witnessed another awesome display of God's power as the waters of the Red Sea were parted and the Israelites marched through the sea on dry ground only to have the waters collapse upon the Egyptians when they tried to follow them. After marching for only a month, we find this statement in Exodus 16, 2 and 3. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the fool, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What selective memory they were exhibiting. Egypt had been terrible. Their cry had risen up unto God. He had heard their groanings, and now they wanted to go back? God gave them manna to eat, bread from heaven. In chapter 17, when the Israelites had arrived at Rephidim in their journey, they complained again. In verses 1 through 3 we find, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. 
Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt, to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Again, the implication was that it had been so much better in Egypt, but it had not been better in Egypt. It had, in fact, been awful. As we move on, the children of Israel arrived at Mount Sinai two months after their departure from Egypt. They heard the voice of Jehovah audibly. They actually heard him speak when the law was given. While Moses was in the mountain, even after hearing God's voice and being frightened by it, they built the golden calf to worship. As Moses descended and saw what they had done, he broke the tablets of stone upon which the commandments had been written. He returned to the mountain, a new set of stone tablets were prepared. While at Sinai, the tabernacle was built, and God moved in the form of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The Passover was celebrated. They were at Sinai for 11 months and 20 days. I think it is appropriate to say that the whole time there was an experience with God. Three days removed from Sinai, they did it again. Numbers chapter 11 verses 4 through 6 tells us the following. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, but now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. In other words, remember how good it was in Egypt? But it had not been good in Egypt. It had been awful. They had cried out to God and they had groaned in their afflictions. They had despaired and God listened. But they were not done yet. Eleven months after leaving Mount Sinai, the Israelites arrived at Kadesh Barnea, which was to be the staging area for the conquest of Canaan. Twelve spies were sent into the promised land to look it over and to bring back some of the fruit thereof. When they returned after forty days, two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. The other ten said, No, sir, we can't do that. Numbers 13, 32, and 33 tells us, So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone, in spying it out, is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. So what was the reaction of the general population of the children of Israel as they were perched on the boundary of the promised land? Well, let's go to Numbers 14 and look at verses 2 through 4. We find the answer there. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. In other words, let's go back to Egypt. It was better there. Again, what selective memories? It had not been better in Egypt. 
They were dying there. They cried out to God for deliverance from their afflictions in Egypt. Their cry had risen up to God. He had given them salvation from their terrible bondage, and now they wanted to go back? This period of Israelite history never ceases to amaze me. Now what application can be made of this period of Israelite history to us today? What lessons can we learn? Paul, writing about this very same period of time in 1 Corinthians 10, said in verses 11 and 12, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who stands take heed lest he does not fall. I think the first and best application we can possibly make is simply this. Once we have been delivered from bondage, once we have tasted salvation, why would we ever want to go back? Yes, the Israelites were in bondage, and it was an oppressive, arduous, and rigorous slavery. But I submit to you that that bondage was nothing compared to the bondage that one suffers when they are not a Christian and are in the service of Satan. Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 21 tells us, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving then from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. The really terrible and insidious thing about the slavery of sin is that it is a choice that we make. Jesus was not kidding when he said in John chapter 8, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. It is the cruelest and most oppressive of all slavery, and it is ridiculous to be in it because we have the choice. Sin promises to be a friend, but it is the worst of enemies. It promises life to the fullest and it brings death, spiritually and physically. It promises freedom and brings slavery. It promises laughter, and ultimately there is only going to be shame and remorse. So why would anyone who has been made free from sin ever want to go back? When a person has been made free from sin and has become the servant of the Lord, they then enjoy all the spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 gives us a partial catalog of those blessings, including being chosen, adopted as children, redeemed, having our sins forgiven, possessing the knowledge of the will of God, gathered together as one with all other believers, having an internal inheritance awaiting us, being sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, and being the purchased possession, that's just to name a few. How does that compare to what we had before we became Christians? Paul asked in Romans chapter 6 and verse 21, Therefore what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? We can look at that verse in a couple of ways, both of which are real eye-openers. 
We could take it to mean that Paul is asking, what was the result of your former life of slavery to sin? The truth is that the result at that time was just more and more sin, more and more lawlessness, more and more things about which we are now ashamed, and the final end of those things is death. Or we could also take it to mean, what positive benefit did you receive from being a slave to the sorts of things of which you are now ashamed? None at all, because the only result of those things is death. Why would someone who has been made free from all of that, why would someone who has been washed in the blood of Christ and delivered from the bondage of sin ever want to go back? Why would a person who has come out of that and looked back upon those sinful activities with shame want to be engaged in something shameful again. It just doesn't make sense. By the way, the shame in Romans chapter 6 verse 21 is not the same as the feeling of guilt or the sense of regret with respect to sin. It is more a feeling of inner pain and humiliation, even disgrace that causes us to wonder how we ever could have done those things which seem so repulsive and hateful to us now. Why do so many, why do so many turn back. Peter tells us how God feels about such a thing in 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 20 through 22. That familiar passage tells us, for if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. We need to learn from the children of Israel and never look back once we leave the land of bondage. We need to do as Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. When the temptation to turn back presents itself, remember, therefore what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. That's it. No benefit other than spiritual death, and that is no benefit at all. Thank you for listening. I hope these words have done you some good today.